hello and a warm welcome to Footprints. The autumn has really arrived. Halloween and bonfire night are past and it's that time of year now to hunker down and stay warm. So a perfect season to explore the night time in and around Bath. In this episode we'll find out about the night sky and visit the Herschel Museum where Uranus was discovered back in the 18th century. We'll hear about the owls in Newton St Lowe and we'll delve into the reasons of why some animals are nocturnal. And our very own Batman, Dan Merritt, will take us on a bat walk around Coombe Down. So let's start with owls. At the west of England, Falconry Centre in Newton St Lowe, do go if you have a moment as it's a fabulous place next to the farm shop and cafe. I met up with Naomi Johns, the manager of the centre, and she told me all about their owls. Yeah, so owls are a wonderful species group and we do loads of work with them here. We're primarily a conservation charity, so we do lots of work monitoring and conserving owls in the Bath area. And of course we have 16 of our own owls who make up part of our flying display team and do lots of work for us here, engaging young people and people of all ages and backgrounds about their amazing traits. So what owls might people living in and around Bath expect to see? Well, I've lived in Bath pretty much my whole life and I've always loved listening to the owls for as long as I can remember. If you're hearing a tawit tawoo at night time, you'll be listening to some of our tawny owls. If you've got the tawoo and the tawit, quite often you've got a male and female conversing between each other. Around this time of year, around October time and November time, it's very common to hear a lot of noise from tawnies because the young tawny owls who were chicks back in May and April are now becoming adolescent and being pushed out of the territories by the parents. So you'll hear a lot of racket from them. If you're very lucky, often if you're out driving in the local area as well, you might see at dusk a white barn owl floating over in front of you in the car. That's very wonderful sighting to see and something you can definitely spot in and around Bath as well. And if you've got particularly good eye for birding and you're out walking quite a lot, or if you're very lucky, you might even get them in your back garden, you may spot the little owls. So a little bit harder to spot. They come out during the daytime. You'll quite often see them hopping around fence posts looking for little mice and that sort of thing in the grass. Oh, brilliant. So... Owls are nocturnal though, aren't they? Not all. So about two-thirds of 268 species of owl across the world are nocturnal. The others might be diurnal, coming out during the day, and some are crepuscular, so come out at dawn and dusk. That's two new words that I've just <laughs> learned. Um, so just thinking about nocturnal then, why do some species of bird, but also animals, choose to live their lives in the dark? So there's so many different factors that come in, but every single species will evolve and adapt for their best advantage of survival. So they'll find a gap in the ecosystem where they can function. So for many of the nocturnal hunting species, it's not because they're blinded by the light during the day or because they can't see where they're going, but actually because they've got the biggest advantage over their prey at night time. Either there's more prey available or the difference in ability of hearing and sight is greater so the owl has a bigger advantage. Or it can be because there's less predation, so less danger at night time, more likely to be successful. So how many birds are nocturnal, though, out of all the birds? Not, not that many are nocturnal, are they? Uh, there are loads of different species that we could be looking at, but when we look at nocturnal birds, owls are usually up quite far on the list because they're famously nocturnal, and most owl species are. Uh, you also have the night jars, of course, as well. You're not so often you'll hear them around these parts, but you never know, so keep your ear out for the famous night jar call. You'll hear them coming out when it gets dark. So some bird species have adapted quite well, and, of course, some species, 
species. Here's the really interesting thing is that now with, in 2023, we have things like peregrines hunting at night using the light from urban cities to see their way. So birds are starting to use nighttime as a time to be active. In fact, the peregrines in Bath that nest in St John's were, seen, were possibly seen hunting at night around lamppost light this time this year. So fantastic research and really exciting for modern day evolution. That's amazing. I'd never heard that one before. So here we are at the West of England Falconry Centre. So you've got falcons. Now tell me about falcons and hawks and what's the difference between them all? That question I get asked all the time and that's one of my least favourite to answer (laughs) (laughs) because it's so hard to answer. It's like someone asking you what's the difference between a dog and a cat. There's a lot. There's a lot that's different between them. They're ultimately two different species groups. So the falcons are often what we refer to as long wings. They've got long, thin, pointed wings. They're birds of big open sky, rapid acceleration and speed. The hawks, uh, usually like our goshawks and our sparrowhawks, for example, shorter, rounded wings, very long tail, adapted for super rapid flight low to the ground, maybe even in your back garden in the case of a sparrowhawk. Okay, so the falcons would include peregrine falcons, kestrels, buzzards? Buzzards are in a separate group. They're what we call the buteos. So they're not quite a hawk, they're not quite a falcon. They've got big, large, broad wings and they're the buteo family. But the falcons we have in this country that you might see are the kestrels, the peregrines, the merlins, which are less likely around Bath, but you never know. Very, very, very occasionally you might see one in these parts, but they mostly winter over the coasts. And then hobbies, which come over in the spring and summer. And you can definitely see them around True Valley Lake and lots of local areas in Bath and Bristol over the summer. And driving here I saw a kite. Oh brilliant yeah the kite's having a big resurgence probably the most successful conservation project in the history of birds of prey anywhere. They've increased their population over the last three years by over 2,000 percent and we're seeing it in Bath as well so keep your eyes out for the kites. The difference between the kite and the buzzard both big soaring birds the buzzards with the fan shaped tails but the kites that really distinctive fork shaped tail that you can spot from down below. And what's happening here today because you do things for children and for families here don't you? You've got a museum I've just been round, fantastic museum but you're also doing something special today Yeah we are, so we're really passionate about making wildlife education accessible to everybody and you only learn about things when you're having a good time and you're interested and it's fun so we're trying to make education fun for young people but for grown ups as well so tonight is our, one of our big family events of the year, it's what we call Haunted Hawks and we have two evenings in October where we do a really cool dusk flying display with some of our native species of raptor and then we have lots of great fun things for the kids we have a creepy crawly trail a halloween hunt and it's all about bringing the concept of wider conservation into fun education so the theme for haunted hawk is all about critters basically invertebrates and how they contribute to the ecosystem why they're important for birds of prey but also for our whole connected system of wildlife in the bath area now naomi you've got quite a lot of birds in cages here Some of our listeners might be asking if that's okay in this day and age. So the birds are in their aviaries here and these guys, uh, well, to put it quite simply, uh, they're all part of a free flight programme. Many of them are out for hours at a time doing their own thing. 
they wouldn't choose to come back if they didn't like it. Uh, that's completely in their own hands and up to them. And I would invite you to come and stick around for the flying show to see what it's all about. To give you an example, uh, this morning, Casper, our Kestrel, I open his every door at 10 o'clock. He's free to come and go as he pleases. He spends an hour doing whatever he likes, basically living the life of a wild Kestrel. And he meets us here at 11 o'clock on the dot every single day for the first flying display. And he does that 365 days a year, pretty much. That's fantastic. So people can come here every day? Our open season runs from the beginning of March to the end of October and you can come down, you can see the birds fly, you can even do an experience and get to experience being up close and personal with the birds as well and uh, just enjoy some of their amazing traits and abilities, which is great fun. And how do people find you? So nowadays, like you find anything on the internet, check us out, westofenglandfalconry.org.uk and if you're local to Bath, pop into Newton St Low. We're about three miles out of the centre of Bath and there's loads to see here. It's a beautiful part of the city as well, so do come on down and have a look. Thanks so much, Naomi. No we're problem. Let's, we're going we're gonna to have the flying display now. Yeah, let's go and fly some birds. Well, we've got a very, very special guest. But um, her name is Bella. Oh, I know. And she is a very chatty Indian rock owl. <laughs> if you're very quiet, you might be able to hear Bella speaking. Oh. <laughs> it's a good voice, isn't it? Not yeah. your clear singing voice, really. Now, one of my favourite things about Bella is her beautiful orange eyes. You may have noticed if you walked around the alderies, our owls have different coloured eyes. It actually means different things. So her beautiful orange eyes are actually telling you when she would like to hunt. And when she would like to hunt is pretty much the type of time it is now. So it's getting close to sunset. So she has got sunset coloured eyes, basically. She hunts at dawn and dusk. So we often think owls are very wise. Um, you often see them in storybooks, all spectacles on, you know, they're giving advice. But owls actually are not as intelligent as people like to give them credit for. But her eyes are so big, they're taking up most of her skull. Most of her head is giant eyeballs. They're like big sausage-shaped things. They go right back into her head. Which means, unfortunately, there's not a lot of room for a brain in there. <laughs> Isabella, her brain is about the size of a baked bean. Yeah. <laughs> so, she doesn't do a lot of learning in her life. It can be quite hard to, if you like, teach an old owl new tricks. So, yeah, thank you so much for coming along and supporting us. Thanks so much to the West of England Falconry Centre. Their events are over for this year, but keep an eye out for when they start again in early March. Now, let's think about the dark skies above Bath and meet a family who became world-famous astronomers whilst living here. William Herschel was born in Hanover in 1738 and came to Britain as a refugee, fleeing the French when he was just 18. At that time, he was a musician and he started off in charge of a small military band in Richmond in Yorkshire. He could play the oboe, harpsichord, violin and organ and during his life he wrote 24 symphonies, a number of concertos and church music. Ten years later, he moved south to take up the post of organist at the very fashionable Octagon Chapel in Bath. So, musician by day, but passionate hobby astronomer by night. I went down to the Herschel Museum in Bath to find out about William and his siblings from its manager, Joe Middleton. I'll leave him to take up the story. 
Well, we're standing in 19 New King Street, Bath, and that's the Hirsch Museum of Astronomy now. But it was the house where brother and sister astronomers and musicians, William and Caroline Herschel, lived in in the late 1770s to the early 1780s. And the museum, it tells you the whole story, so the life and achievements of William and Caroline. And I'll add their brother Alexander as well, he's important. And it gives you a great sense of their time and place and how they changed history through their discoveries in astronomy. garden here at 19 New King Street and this is unbelievably the site where a planet was discovered and we're in the middle of a residential street you can almost shake hands with the neighbours over the wall so this isn't the idealised sort of observatory high on a hill far from a city we're in in Bath and the big difference though when the Herschels were here that there were no buildings behind them so they had more of an open southern sky Um, but this is where they would have put their telescopes in even including a 20-foot-in-length telescope, if you can imagine that fitting in here somewhere. But this is the momentous place where suddenly a new planet was discovered and doubled the known size of the solar system and completely altered the Herschel's lives forever from being working musicians to becoming some of the most preeminent astronomers of their day and leaving a huge legacy forevermore and uh, going off to work for the king. But it all, all started here in this back garden in Bath. What happened was that when William was here, he was trying to look at double stars. So that's what he was looking for at the time. He wasn't looking for a planet. And double stars, he thought, if he collected enough of them, um, they could be used to measure distances in terms of parallax. And so that's what he was up to. And then one fateful evening, he was looking at this background of stars, and he saw an object move in front of them, which wasn't star-like. It was, you know, dish-shaped. It was moving fast. So it was definitely in our solar system. And he thought it was a comet to begin with, or what he called a you know planetary star. And William was part of what's called the Bath Philosophical Society. So he was part of a group of people who were part of the sciences and astronomy. And through them and his contacts, he wrote a letter to the Royal Society saying, I think I've discovered a comet, um, but it's an unusual one. And then this really spread the word around like wildfire for astronomers and all around Europe and the world. So everyone was trying to look at this bizarre comet, which of course turned out to be what we now call the planet Uranus. And so once everyone mapped it, its size, its distance, and its orbit, that's, those were all the sort of things which confirmed it was a planet. And then suddenly William had the honour of naming this, and he never called it Uranus or Uranus. That came from other astronomers at the time. He originally called it George, or Planet George or George's Star. So he named it after the king at the time, King George III, or the era that he discovered it in. But this was a very unsubtle move because, of course, it got the king's attention. And the king went on to become William and his sister Caroline's patron. So that was the turning point. He took advantage of the great fame that this new object brought him and the new sort of uh, interest in him and his telescopes. And this led him on the path to go and work for King George III. So Caroline, who lived with William here at 90 New King Street, was his younger sister. And her life was very different to the boys in the family. Um, and they're a musical family, and particularly the boys who were raised up in music. Caroline didn't quite have the, the same education and music background as they did. In fact, her very early years were very difficult. She suffered from illnesses like typhus and smallpox. She was essentially used as a maid to the family, doing all the domestic duties. By the time she came to Bath at the age of 22 to join William and Alexander, who were still bachelors then, 
Uh, she looked after their household, but also she became a singer on the stage, helping organise William's shows. And eventually Caroline joined him in with the astronomy and she was trained up as an assistant. And her career was spectacular as well because she became known as the Comet Huntress. She discovered potentially eight to nine comets in her lifetime. She discovered 14 nebulae. So those were her own discoveries which made her famous. But the work she did with William assisting him was writing down all his observations, doing all the hard work, like reducing the data, all you know, hugely accurate, hardly any mistakes, putting these all into catalogues. And Caroline uh, was a member of the Royal Astronomical Society. She's an honorary member. She had the gold medal from the RAS. She got the gold medal from the King of Prussia. So in her day, she was truly a pioneer of, of astronomy and the work that she did independently and also the work that she did in partnership with William. And the Herschels wouldn't have achieved you know, what they did um, without the two of them working together. So once uh, William got official patronage from King George III, that's when things changed. So all his time could be devoted to astronomy, the building of telescopes, um, his research and observations, his theories. And Caroline joined him, uh, first of all, as a, an assistant, uh, unpaid assistant. But eventually she became the first professional female astronomer in British history as well um, through one of her discoveries of a comet. Um, but when they were working for the king, they really began what was their massive sweeps, their constructions of the heavens. So these systematic sweeps from the northern hemisphere of stars, of nebulae, putting these all down into catalogues and maps. And this was like the first epic campaign, really, using giant telescopes for their time uh, to really try and understand the universe at large. And this was new territory for astronomy. So this is what, you know, the opportunity of being the king's astronomer was, was they're being paid for it. They had all this time to do it. The only real things they had to do for the king was that if he wanted to be entertained or his guests entertained or they'd inform him of the latest discoveries, that's what they did. And that was very different to the astronomer royal at Greenwich, Neville Masculine, where you had a brief, you worked with the Navy and navigation, you had all these things to do, the lunar calendars. Well, the Herschels, essentially, you know, if the king wanted to look for your telescope, fine, you bring up to Windsor, he comes down. But 99% the rest of the time was devoted to their projects, which was to map the known universe. Yeah, so in terms of sort of advanced technology that the Herschels made, there was very large telescopes for their time. And uh, these were frontal view telescopes. So what it means, they were using reflecting telescopes where normally the eyepiece is on the side and they have mirrors that bounce the light and form the image and get it to the eyepiece on the side. A frontal view telescope is where the eyepiece is literally on the front on the lip and it just has one big mirror at the bottom and these were usually for giant telescopes like 40 foot in length or 20 foot so the herschels really ushered in a new age of giant telescopes used for for astronomy and looking at the universe and they were prolific in the sense of not just making telescopes for themselves but forever other astronomers or people who wanted to buy a Herschel telescope. So in fact, you could order a Herschel telescope. I mean, at the other end, when it arrived, you had to put it together yourself. So there's some quite funny letters of Caroline having to write to people saying, well, that's, you know, you've got stage A, B and C, right? But this is what you have to do for stage D. So they had a whole business uh, making and selling telescopes as well. Well, 
well, just looking at the night sky, I think it really does, it's one of those things when you stare at it, you start answering questions. So, you know, why, why is the sun there? Why is there black holes? Or how did this all start? Or how will it all end? And there's so many questions to answer. And you can do that in terms of, you know, a professional astronomer, or you can have this sort of romantic side of using your imagination as well. And uh, for me, it's just, you start to get an idea of our place in things. So uh, I think the old saying is, you know, don't look down at your feet, look up at the stars. And you start to get a sense of the magnitude of everything. And it, really a sense of wonder and awe of that, well, how do we fit in within all of this? With How do we fit in the universe? Um, so for me, it's that really, you know, contemplative thing of just trying to understand how, how do we fit into all of this? And astronomy... Um, either looking through telescopes or, you know, in an urban place or in a, in a nature reserve, in a dark sky place. You know, hopefully what we hope is that this won't go away. The, you know, light pollution will not stop that. And I think that's the big thing for, you know, dark sky campaigns is to really say to everyone, you know, it's not good now, but it can get worse. And, um, and to break that link of being able to see the night sky and the connection with the universe and and also what our ancestors would have seen, that'd be a you know, great, great loss for everyone. The closest sort of, uh, dark sky reserves would be places like Exmoor, you know, Brecon Beacons and places like that. And, um, and those, yeah, spectacular places to go to because you suddenly really do get the contrast if you're in an urban area uh, to those types of spaces where, you, you know, you can get a sense of what's out there in the sky, the stars, the galaxies and, and more. So in the winter skies above Bath in the local area, um, it's a good time of year to see the planets because um, they'd be higher in the sky. Um, so it's a good time to see Uranus, good time to see Jupiter, you can see Saturn. And I think Mars is a bit hard because it's quite close to, to the sun. And then you can see like constellations like Orion and Cassiopeia. And I think the main thing which happens every December, so usually the 14th, 15th December, is the uh, the Geminid uh, meteor showers, and that usually you can see those with the naked eye, so they're pretty spectacular to see. Usually that's December the 14th and the 15th, you can see them. If you're thinking about starting astronomy, uh, my great friends and partners in the Bath Astronomers would always recommend go along to a local astronomy group, look through their telescopes, chat to these local astronomers, and the main thing they would say is not get a telescope straight away. Actually, if you've got binoculars, start with binoculars and maybe get a tripod to keep it steady. And um, I mean, and then you start to find if you can handle sort of the, the cold nights and, and, and you get a you know, real sense of wanting to, to do this and achieve this, and then possibly go on to telescopes. And uh, the ones that we use at the museum, which are user-friendly and, and portable, are things like Dobsonian reflector telescopes. And uh, so they, they're you know, reasonably easy to set up and use and maintain. And they're good for all things looking at, you know, the planets and the moons and the stars. And then, you know, you can start going up the ladder for <laughs> more sort of expensive things. But the technology now is incredible. There's like uh, telescopes called EV scopes, which, um, you know, you can set up to use via your phone. So they're GPS set up and basically they have a catalogue um, which you can use. So, for example, if you press Mars, it will go and find Mars for you. If you press a button for Andromeda, it will find it. Now, this is um, 
reasonably pricey at the moment, but I imagine the prices will come down. So there's all types of new spectacular sort of consumer level technology coming out, which people can use. Um, but my recommendation is try and join in uh, with the local astronomy group. They're always welcoming. And, you know, check on the news or the local forums or, you know, sky at night to what you can see. And then if you're really into it, then that's when start getting into maybe buying binoculars or, or getting into telescopes. In terms of, of helping astronomy groups and, and groups like the Dark Skies Alliance and Starlit Skies in terms of urban light pollution um, and helping document it, is every February the, the Council Protection of Rural England uh, they do a star count in February and anyone can join in and it's using the naked eye so you don't need binoculars or telescopes and they ask you to look in a certain section of the night sky and count how many stars you can see and then you submit this on, online and what this hopes to do is build up a picture of light pollution around the UK and if it's getting better or worse and really this is documenting as best they can through a, sort of a public uh, forum ways to um, document light pollution and uh, hopefully that will help enter the larger conversation about urban lighting and light pollution and ways to help improve it through design and practice so that's one really simple way to get involved is the, the February star camp through the CPRE. When people visit the Herschel Museum, they get to see the house that they would have lived in and the collection is filled with things that the Herschels would have owned and used as well as things from the time. So you're really getting experience of the Herschel story told through the rooms and the collection, giving you a sense of them as people, giving you a sense of their music and astronomy, but also what it was like to live in a townhouse here in, in the Bath City Centre. And throughout the year, we have exhibitions, we have a programme of astronomy events. So you can actually join in with the Bath astronomers here looking through telescopes through the garden where William and Caroline would have looked through and saw the planet Uranus. And also with the Herschel Society, which is one of our partners, there's lots of lectures which are done throughout the year. And um, so there's the whole roster of things which you can see in terms of the Herschel story, their history, but also current astronomy. So what's going on in astronomy uh, in the current world? Thanks there to Joe Middleton from the Herschel Museum. Now sticking with the night, it's time to get out and about and see if we can find some bats. Well, Bathscape's manager, Dan Merritt, is Bath's very own Batman and his daughter Rose persuaded him to take her and others on a bat walk around Coombe Down. Right, is everybody ready? We're going to go on a bat walk. Shall we go? Yay! <laughs> so does your dad talk to you a lot about bats? Well, sometimes. It depends on what situation it's in. OK, so wh when might he talk to you about bats? When the mayor is visiting. The mayor? Oh, tell me more about that. Well, I don't actually know if it was the mayor. It was just someone very famous who was coming to school and Dad said that she knew him and he talked about when he got a bat out of her house. That was very clever of him. I think he used to do this thing for bats and stuff where people would call him if they had a bat problem and then Daddy would solve it. Wow. 
he's a bath batman, isn't he? Yes, that's what the important person um, who came to school said. He said, so your dad's Batman. <laughs> yeah. I think that's very cool to have a dad who's Batman. Well, sort of, except he's not the Marvel Batman. Oh, he's not. He's your dad, Batman. Yeah, the dad Batman. Okay. <laughs> right, we're going to wander up the road and we're going to go to the church. First things first then, we need to decide what bats are. So bats... They're flying creatures. They're flying creatures. <laughs> Very good. Bats are mammals, like us. The only mammals that can fly. Exactly what I was going to ask. Bats can do something that no other mammal can do, and they can fly. So bats have wings, don't they? I need a volunteer... Me, me, me. ..to be a bat. I need you to put oh. on these bat wings. Oh, wow. What bats have is they have huge hands. So you see the lines here? This represents their fingers and webbing between them. Then the wing comes down and it actually goes further down so it joins at their ankles and they have a tail membrane. Wow. You said that bats are the only mammal that can fly. What else do you know about bats? When do they fly? At night. At night time, okay. So we better make it night time for you because it's still got a little bit of light in the sky at the moment. So put these dark glasses on. Now, what do you think bats eat? Um, worms? <laughs> no, any other guesses? I saw moths just now. Oh, there, and I thought maybe, maybe moths. Moths? Moths is a good thing. They all eat moths. insects. So moths and little midges, those little flies that fly around, they eat those. A pipistrelle can eat 3,000 little midges in a single night. Wow. Yeah. Because like, they use up lots and lots of energy. Like a whale. Like a whale? Yes. Like a whale eating krill. How are you going to catch 3,000 midges in the dark? So bats do something very, very clever. What bats do is they use a thing called echolocation. And as they flap their wings, they shout out in a high-pitched shout and they can hear all the echoes from that shout rebounding off things. So in here they can hear the echoes rebounding off the trees, off the leaves on the trees, and off the little midges flying around the leaves on the trees. It's that exact. So they, they aren't blind. People think bats are blind, but they're not. But they don't use their eyes in the middle of the night when it's too dark to see. They use their hearing. So we've put some ears on you now. So when we go searching for bats, because it's often in the night, we can't really see them so much, although we can at this time of night, but we have to use a thing called a bat detector. So I think it's time we broke out the bat detectors. Bat detector? Yeah. On the side of your bat detector, there's a little dial here. Is it that? That's right, the bottom one. If you roll it down, then it should switch on. And then on the front, is a big dial that's got frequency on it. So if you turn it, it changes the numbers on the front. So if you turn the dial so that the number says about 50, and then ah. we're going to be able to know if there's any bats. Wait. So the most common bats are pipistrelles. There's actually two types of pipistrelle that we commonly see, much more common than all the bats. And that's the soprano pipistrelle, which has a call at about 55 kilohertz or the common pipistrelle, which has a slightly deeper voice at 45 kilohertz. 
Mm. But you'll hear both of them if you're on about 50. Mm. So that's what we're going to listen out for first and hope that there's something flying around the church. So shall we have a wander around and see if we can hear anything? Let's go on a bat hunt. Do they like dusk particularly or do they like dark? They, depends on the species. So the bigger bats, like the biggest bat in this country is the noctule, has the biggest wingspan anyway. And that comes out earlier because it doesn't have to fear predators like sparrowhawks that could grab it. Whereas smaller bats like it to be a bit darker so that they're not so obvious to things like sparrowhawks. So um, yeah, they'll be coming out about this time, kind of dusk time, because they want to eat as many insects as they can because flying around uses up a lot of energy. And so the main time when you get little midges and things is just as it's going dusk and just before dawn. So in the middle of the night, they'll often go back to their roosts and hang up and have a little nap. Oh. What the bats are doing is every time they flap a wing, as I say, they're doing a shout out like a ah, ah, but they're, doing, they're flapping their wings quite quickly. Now on a bat detector, for the pipistrelle, it has what's called a wet slappy sound and it sounds a, a bit like that. That's me clapping my hands together rather than the sound of a pipistrelle. <laughs> and you can tell then which species it is by the way it sounds. So if it's a nice slappy sound like that, it's a pipistrelle. The highest voiced bats, the bats with the highest pitched voices, are the horseshoe bats. And they sound completely different and they actually shout through their nose. And it sounds on a bat detector a little bit like this. And we do have them in Coombdown. And it's possible we might hear one later on the walk, but not around this area. So, Dan, how many species of bat are there in the UK? In the UK, well, it keeps growing because they keep finding subspecies within species, but it's about 18. Um, and we have almost all of them around here. We've about 16 of those here around Bath. And, uh, oh, there's a bat. So did that sound like my slappy, clappy sound? Uh, or not really? It sounded like me getting like this. That's a better impression. So that was a soprano pipistrelle, which I can tell it was a soprano pipistrelle because it was calling at its most slappy at about 55 kilohertz. And it was tiny. And it was tiny, exactly, yeah, it was small. Here he comes again, look. So when he thinks he's picking up an insect, he'll actually call, or she, will actually call faster. So you can hear the pace, it's like da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes you'll hear it And that means that it's thinking there's an insect to catch and it's homing right in on it. So it's calling really, really fast so it can tell exactly where that insect is. And then it'll either catch it in its mouth or in its tail membrane sometimes and then put it in its mouth. Um, so you can sometimes actually hear when they catch something. And suddenly it changes direction violently, doesn't it? I suppose that's when it's diving for its insect. Yes, yeah, exactly. It thinks there's something there and it's suddenly heading off. Here it comes. So these bats at the moment are desperately trying to build up their fat reserves to get through the winter. So they want to put on as much weight as possible so they can make it all the way through until the spring. Right, shall we walk on and see if we can find any different types of bats? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah.
Are bats as a species, are they okay? How are their numbers? No, so their numbers really kind of crashed in this latter half of the 20th century. So what we have here with, with particularly greater horseshoes, they lost about 90% of their numbers, um, basically through kind of habitat loss, um, harsh winters as well, you know, really kind of affect them. But because they gather together in roosts in the summer, they're really vulnerable. So if somebody kind of decides to close up that roost or disturb it in some way, then a whole colony can be lost in one fell swoop. So that's all the females gathering together to have their, their kind of single baby in the summer. I heard something. You heard something? Okay, let's pull our back to take back up, Alec. Oh, it's over here. The moon's up. It's all Pippa Strell. It is Pippa Strell. Pippa Strell. I'm trying to work out if that's a coin pipistrel or a soprano pipistrel, but there's so many back detectors on, I can't, can't pick out. You heard it go, Did you hear it catch yes, something then? Yes. Right. So you tried to catch something then again? right over our heads, isn't it? So I think we've got a common pipistrelle and a soprano pipistrelle. I think if we tune down to 45, we'll still hear it slappy. Yeah, that's a common pipistrelle we've got. So that's our second species of the night. Oh, that's exciting. A common pipistrelle and a soprano pipistrelle. Yes. They've got a choir. <laughs> All we need is the alto. Right, shall we move on? Shall we do a bit of walking? Okay. So we're recording this a few days before Halloween and we've got a full moon up there with scudding clouds in front of it and bats flying around in front. Fantastic. Now we're walking deep into the woods, somewhere on Coombe Down. Oh, and a greater horseshoe. Greater horseshoe. That's my mind. Did you hear something there? Yeah, yeah greater yeah. horseshoe. So, greater horseshoes are one of the rarest bats in Britain. Ooh. Ooh. We just heard a great horseshoe, but we didn't see it, did we? Tell me about hibernation. How many animals hibernate and what's that all about? So hibernation, basically, if you're an animal, you need to decide what you're going to do in the winter. And there's often, for a lot of animals, less food. So for bats particularly, because they use up so much energy trying to find their food, they need to keep eating and there's just not the insects for them to eat in the winter. So the most sensible thing for them to do is to build up their fat in the autumn and then to hibernate through the winter. So at this time of year, they're getting pregnant or mating and they're building up their fat reserves. And then in the spring, the females will actually do a thing called delayed implantation, actually very clever with the mating. So they won't get pregnant at the time of mating. They'll store the sperm and then they can all become pregnant at around the same time. 
And then that means that in the summer, they'll give birth within a day or two of each other in the roost. So incredibly well thought out. And so that means that then they can all act together to bring up their young as a cohort. That is amazing. I no, never knew that. In bats, it's the females which are absolutely dominant, which are the most important to do all the exciting stuff. All the males really need to do is to stay alive through the year in time to mate okay. in the okay. autumn. And that's when they do this kind of thing where they, they'll swarm at cave sites. Um, so it's happening this kind of time of year, but it doesn't tend to happen in numbers until late in the kind of midnight time. Um, so when you're, when you're searching for swarming sites, it tends to be late that the numbers turn up. That's like the bat disco. The bat disco. The bat disco, exactly. <laughs> so they'll all fly around in swarms outside the caves. We don't exactly know why they're doing it, but we think it is linked to mating. And it's mostly males, but then the, the kind of, I think they outnumber the females about kind of five to one. Um, so the females come on certain nights and then, yeah, they'll mate then. But that's not all species. So some species actually hold territories. The males will hold a territory and they'll have a group of females, they'll have a harem. So things like noctules and greater horseshoe bats. The noctule bats at this time of year will be in the trees and they'll call out and call the females to them and have a harem in a tree hole. Wow. Or the males will be in cave sites doing the same idea. And they can have, yeah, five or six females in there with them through the autumn. That's amazing. And uh, here we are, a few days before Halloween. You can see why bats are connected with Halloween then, can't you? We've got the full moon rising. It's full moon tomorrow. Yep. We've got the bats. We just need the pumpkin. We just need the pumpkins, don't we? <laughs> and the trick-or-treat sweets. Come on, Pommy. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks so much, Dan, for taking us all, your family and friends, on a fantastic bat walk. Thanks so much. That's fine. Thanks for joining us. It's been fun, hasn't it? Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. And please share as widely as you can with your friends, family and colleagues. And for more information on Barscape, you can visit the website barscape.co.uk. Thanks too to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer, and I'll see you next month. Mm -hmm.